Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 4. No, not the Gospels. I've already preached on all the Gospel passages that have to do with the birth of Christ. I'm now venturing out into the rest of the Bible. And as you're there, I want to tell you a little story. Jacob was 10 and Sarah was 8. They were orphans. Their parents had died from a terrible event that occurred in a garden long before they could remember. They were too young to provide for themselves, so they became the property of the state. The state offered $100 a year to people who would be willing to take in an orphan and raise them to be honest, responsible citizens. And so it was with Jacob and Sarah. They were taken into the custody of the blacksmith. The blacksmith was mean and cruel. In fact, he hated children. He had no intention of raising Jacob and Sarah properly. He just wanted to make them slaves and keep the money for himself. The blacksmith was big and tall with a thick black beard, yellow teeth, and bad breath. His hands were large and dirty and scarred and calloused. And he drank wine, lots of wine. He became drunk and meaner still. He was a man of violent temper, a thief and a liar, just to name a few of his better qualities. Jacob and Sarah started to become like him. He constantly swore at Jacob and Sarah using such filthy language I could never repeat it at a time like this. And day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year drug on for Jacob and Sarah. And they never went to school. Instead, they worked long toilsome days in the blacksmith shop doing whatever they were told. All day long, they were fetching wood and fetching coal and preparing meals and cooking and cleaning and scrubbing and doing chores. And if they didn't do things just like the blacksmith wanted, he would scream at them and strike them with a whip, which would leave terrible red welts upon their skin. They became used to the constant sound of the bellows in the blacksmith shop, the hammer striking pieces of hot metal, sparks flying about, his swearing and yelling and drunkenness and complaining. And life was miserable living with the blacksmith for Jacob and Sarah, for they were ignorant and ill-taught, clothed in rags and sorely neglected. They only had each other. They did not have any mother or father to love them. The worst part of their life was at Christmas time when the blacksmith would send them out into the streets to beg for money. Clothed in the dirty, old, worn-out clothes of the blacksmith, they would stand for hours on busy street corners and beg from those who would pass by. Often they would stand there all day with no food except for maybe a small piece of dry, crusty bread. But begging wasn't all that bad. They kind of liked it because at least they were able to get away from the mean old blacksmith with all of his drunkenness, cursing and yelling. The most painful part of begging at Christmas time was seeing the well-dressed women, businessmen, and happy children with presents and treats and smiles on their faces 
Oh, how Sarah and Jacob longed to have a mother and father who would love them. They had never had a single piece of candy, and they wondered what it tasted like. A few times, generous people would give them enough money to buy clothes and food, but they were under strict orders from the blacksmith to bring every penny home. Anything they received, they had to bring it home. They thought about disobeying and using some money they received for food, but they were afraid, for the blacksmith always seemed to know whenever they lied. But one snowy Sunday, a week before Christmas, Jacob and Sarah were begging on a very busy street corner. And everything changed. Do you know what happened? I am sure that you do not. Because I just wrote this this morning. (laughs) But if you wait until the end of the sermon, I will tell you. Our sermon today is from a text in Galatians. And the people that Paul is addressing are people who are under bondage, or some of them used to be under bondage, to a cruel taskmaster who treated them harshly. Their cruel master was Satan, who is a liar and convinces people that they can get to heaven by some other way than Jesus. And there are people like this in every church, people who think that they are going to heaven because they've been good, or they haven't killed anybody, or they've tried to be sincere. And do you know what this means? It means they're still in bondage. They're still in their sin. And Satan is still their master. God's law tells us that if we break one law, we become a transgressor of all the law. But yet, Satan convinces them that if they keep most of the law, or are as good as the average person, or better than the notorious axe murderer, That surely they'll get to heaven. I mean, they aren't all that bad. And so Satan tempts them to sin and then convinces them that their sin isn't that bad. And that surely God, because he is loving, will let them into heaven. And so the apostle writes to a group of these people. Some have been rescued from their bondage. Others still need rescued from their bondage. But he wants to encourage them. He wants to make sure that those who are still in bondage to sin and Satan and under the judgment of God are able to be set free. And so this is what he writes in Galatians 4, 1 through 7. Now I say as long as an heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. From these first seven verses, I want to point out three realities which every one of you should know and understand if you want to get to heaven. If you want to be freed from bondage to sin and Satan. If you want to escape the judgment of God. And if you want to know the true meaning of Christmas. 
And the first is this. Everyone starts out as a slave to a hard master. Look at verse 1. The text says, now I say, as long as the heir is a child. Now, some of you may be thinking when I say the word heir that I'm talking about the stuff we breathe. That's not what we're talking about. We aren't talking about air like you breathe or like this clear stuff here. We're talking about something else. An heir is someone who by birth has the rights to receive all that his parents own. All their property, all their prestige, their house, their money, everything that the parents have goes to their heir. So let's say that your parents are millionaires and your parents have a great deal of money. You are their child. That means you are an heir to their fortune. And because you are their child, you will have a great inheritance coming to you. When they die, or maybe even before that, you will receive a great sum of money and maybe all that they own. That's what an heir is. And that's what Paul is talking about. As long as an heir is a child. Look at the middle of verse 1. He does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. You know, even though you're an heir, and even though your parents are rich... If you're a child, you're kind of still like a servant. You're like a servant. This is a sad thing. You're too young to take care of yourself. You don't know how to balance a checkbook. You don't know how to pay the bills or drive a car or cook or do a lot of the things that you need to do when you're an adult. So when you're a child, you're kind of like a slave. I mean, you're living at home and you have a place to sleep. But so do the servants. They live in the back of the mansion you live in. You are fed and they are fed. And you are clothed and they are clothed. And you do what you're told and they do what they're told. They have certain responsibilities and you have certain responsibilities. So in a large way, you're just like a servant, even though you're an heir to a great fortune. And that's what Paul is saying in verse 1. Look at verse 2. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And so even though you may be an heir to a great fortune, until you get old enough, your parents put you under guardians. Maybe there is a nanny who takes care of you. Maybe you have private teachers and tutors who teach you things so that you can know what you need to know in order to be an adult. That's what Paul is saying here, that everybody is under guardians until the date set by the father when the inheritance will be received. Look at verse 3. Paul speaking figuratively also says, So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Now this has a couple scary words in it. The word bondage, which is the least scary word. And I think we all know what bondage is. When criminals do bad things, the police catch them. They put them into handcuffs. And then they take them to jail. They are in custody to the police and they are in bondage in handcuffs. And that's what it's talking about here. Paul is saying that everyone in the beginning is held in bondage, but not to the police, not to handcuffs, not in jail. He says it is to the elemental Things of the world. You're thinking, what are elemental things of the world? Well, in verse 9, Paul talks about 
these very same people, some of them wanting to, after they were saved and after they received Jesus, to go back to the elemental things, which was to the Jewish law. So Jews, they lived under the law of God. And the law of God was designed to help them see their need for a savior. But many Jews thought that by keeping the law, they could be good enough to earn and deserve salvation. And they were under bondage to the lie that by their good deeds, they could get into heaven. Those who weren't Jews, the Greeks or the Gentiles, they trusted in their idols. They trusted in their Greek gods. They trusted in other things. And so that is what Paul means by the elemental things of the world. We know he is talking about Jews and Greeks because he talks about them in verse 28 of chapter 3 at the very end of the chapter. No, the law for Jews had a purpose. It was to lead them to Christ. If you look at verse 24 of chapter 3, it says, Therefore the law has become our tutor or our nanny to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. That is made right before God by faith. Not by doing works, not by keeping the law. And so whether you're a Gentile, worshiping idols or animals or yourself or whether you're a Jew trying to keep the law of Moses or keeping the traditions of the Jews none of that can save you it cannot save you and people who think they can be saved and get to heaven by doing those things are under bondage to those elemental things and this is what Paul is talking about but there is some good news Even though everyone sins and is guilty before God, and even though everyone deserves to be judged, God, because of his love for us, made a way for us to get to heaven. And do you know what God did? I will give you a hint. It has something to do with the true meaning of Christmas. This brings us to our next point. How you can be purchased from slavery and adopted as sons. Look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time came. Stop there. What is the fullness of time? Well, everybody knows that God is perfect and everything he does is perfect. He is all-knowing and all-wise. And every time he does something, it can't be improved upon. Everything God does is as good as it could be and no one could ever improve upon it. So when it says the fullness of time came, what that means is at the perfect time, at the time of God's perfect choosing or at the time that couldn't be a better time. At that time, the very fullness of time, something happened. Verse 4, notice also says, but... Now, there's a little word there, but this is a contrast word. He has just talked about you were in bondage to the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, so what he's going to do is he's going to tell us God's solution to our bondage. How do we get out of our bondage? How do we get away from sin and Satan and the judgment of God? Well, he's going to tell us. He's going to tell us. And if you look at verse 4, in the middle of verse 4, the text tells us, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. And notice God didn't require that a son be born, or that a man and a woman would have a child. But the son already existed. The son was with God in heaven, and he sent that son down to earth. 
God sent forth his son, his very own son, which would make him the son of God, which would make him God. Look at the middle of verse 4 again. The text also says God sent forth his son who was born of a woman. Pastor Brock talked about that. What do women give birth to? Dogs? No. Cats? No. Elephants? No. There is only one thing that women ever give birth to. And that is humans. Peoples. Baby. Baby humans. That's all. And so God sent forth his son to be born of a woman. Because he was the son of God that made him God. And because he was born of a woman that made him man. This is amazing. The scriptures talk about this. In Isaiah 7.14 we read, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with a child and bear a son. And she will call his name God with us. Emmanuel. In Isaiah 9.6 we read, For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest in his shoulders. Listen to some of his name. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. In Micah 5.2, it speaks of the place where this child will be born. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. That means he would be born Somebody who had already lived for all eternity. God. And I think most of us know who this is. It is the baby Jesus. The babe born in Bethlehem. The son of the Virgin Mary. God was his father which made him God. Mary was his mother making him man. He was 100% both God and man. And if you look at the very end of verse 4 where we also learn that God's son was not only born of a woman, but was also born under the law. Or, you could say, the elemental principles of the world. Being a Jew, he was born under the law. If he was a Gentile, he would be born under some other elemental principle. But the whole point is, he was born under a system which could not save him. Now, you might be wondering why this matters. You might be thinking to yourself, well, Pastor Jack, come on. Uh, if Jesus was a man just like us, and if he was born of a woman just like us, and if he was born under the law, the elemental things of the world just like us, then why is Jesus so special? Now, he was special because being God, he was sinless, and he was able to live a perfect life as a man, as the God-man. He lived under the law of Moses, but he never broke a single commandment. He never sinned, not even once. He never even had a bad thought. He always did everything his parents said and never once disobeyed. Ever his whole life. Look at verse 5, where we were told why God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. It says, so that, or we're giving the reason now, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. Now just stop there. You might be thinking to yourself, what does redeem mean? Well, at this time of year, there's a lot of redeeming going on. 
Sometimes there's too much redeeming going on. Let's say you want a certain toy for Christmas. I mean, you've been wanting this toy. And being a good child, you tell your parents, I would like to have this for, for, for Christmas, Mom, Dad. And you're faithful to remind them every day. Sometimes more than once every day. Don't forget, I would like this. Don't forget, I would like that. And you remind them frequently in hopes that you might get that favorite toy that you want. The problem is, is your parents don't own a toy like that. Now, there is somebody who does own a toy like that. It's the guy who owns the toy store. The problem is, is that toy is his is in his possession. He owns that toy. And if your mom and dad want to bring that thing home and give it to you, they have to go redeem it. So they have to go to the toy store and they have to pay the price to purchase that toy from the toy owner so they can wrap it up and put it under the tree for you so you can tear off the paper real quick and play with it. In the same way, when we are born, we are in bondage to sin. We are in bondage to Satan. We are under the just judgment of God. And somebody has to purchase us. Somebody has to set us free from sin and Satan and the judgment of God. Because we think evil things and we do evil things and we do disobey unlike Jesus. And this is the reason... Why God, that first Christmas night, sent forth his son. Born of a woman, born as a Jew under the law of Moses. God knew all men were in bondage to the elemental things of the world. And he wanted to set them free. But he knew what the price was. If you're going to redeem a person who is a sinner, you have to find a perfect person. And they are really hard to come by. And not only a perfect person, but a perfect person who is willing to lay down his life and pay the price that you should pay in order to redeem you from sin and Satan and the just judgment of God. It was as if Jesus went to the toy store and told the toy store owner, I have enough money to purchase all of these toys. And so anybody who wants can come and receive a free toy for the asking. You just charge it to my account. You just put a sign out front that says all toys free for anyone who is willing to receive them and play with them according to my rules. And that is kind of what Jesus did. And dying on the cross, he prayed the price for every sinner to set them free. And he says, come to me. Come to me and receive me and I will set you free. I will cancel out your sin. I will free you from Satan. I will free you from the judgment of God. I will justify you or make you just before God. If you are willing to receive me as your Lord and Savior, I am willing to forgive you of your sins and make you right before God. So you have to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but that means you have to turn from sin and Satan. This is called repentance. It is to turn from 
those elemental things that you're living for, from those deceptions, from those lies. It's like saying to Satan, Satan, I'm quitting you. I'm no longer going to let you be my master anymore. I'm going to stop working for you. I have found a better master, a more loving master, a master who is going to take care of me for all eternity. And so I quit. And you sin. I have been living for you too. And you have brought me pleasure. But you have brought me more grief than pleasure. And I know if I keep living for you, you will damn me to hell. And I don't want to go to hell. And so, I'm quitting you too. I'm going to start living for Jesus. I'm going to make him my king. I'm going to follow him. Have you done that? Have you done that? Everybody needs to do that. If you haven't done that, what are you waiting for? You need to do that right now. Jesus has already paid the price to redeem you. He is waiting. Come, receive the free gift of eternal life. And why are you sitting there? Is sin and Satan and the judgment of God all that wonderful? Receive Jesus as your new master and Lord and Savior. This is the true meaning of Christmas. This is why God sent forth his son. Look at the end of verse 5. Where Paul tells us why God sent his son to redeem us so that we might receive adoption as sons. That is why God sent his son to earth, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem us and make us his children, his sons. That would make you a child of God, a daughter of God, a son of God. You would be adopted by God. And being adopted, you would become part of God's family. And being part of God's family, you get to receive everything God has. And I have news for you. God is very, very, very rich. He will give you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He will make you his child. All eternity will be spent enjoying the riches that God has for you. And this is amazing. This is amazing. But that is why God sent his son. Because he wanted some more children. He wanted to adopt some more children. And what is also amazing is when you become a child of God, do you know what that makes Jesus? Your brother. Your brother. You know, we talk about Jesus and he is Lord and he is king and we're going to worship him. He'll always be king. But you know what? Jesus will also be your brother. Your brother. Imagine walking up to Jesus. Hey, bro. Your brother. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, if I do this, if I quit working for Satan, if I turn my back on my sin, if I receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior, how do I know I'm going to receive this inheritance? I mean, how do I know that I'm actually, it's going to be worth it? I'm going to get what's being promised here. I mean, I I see that there's a big promise, but I'm wondering, well... That leads us to our third point. Look at verse 6. The guarantee that you will receive your inheritance because you are sins. Now just stop there for a moment. Notice Paul has not, is not speaking to those who don't know Christ. He is now assuming in verse 6, he is speaking to people who have realized that sin, Satan, and the judgment of God are not what they want. 
They have received Jesus Christ. He says, because you are sons. So he's speaking to those who have given their life to Christ, to follow Christ. Because you are sons, look at the middle of verse 6. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. You know what happens? When you give your life to Jesus... When you receive him as your savior, when you believe he died on the cross for your sins, was buried and rose again on the third day, that you can't save yourself, that you are under bondage to the elemental things of the world and the judgment of God you deserve because you are a sinner. When you realize all that and you receive Jesus, God redeems you. He adopts you. And as a guarantee, he puts the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, inside of you and the Holy Spirit then changes your life you begin to think about God more you begin wanting to pray to God to talk to God you want to read your Bible because you want to learn about God and have him speak to you and then God helps you understand the Bible he gives you power to obey him and this makes you want to just cry out Abba Father and that word Abba just means Daddy It makes you just learn, yearn to be with God and to learn more about him because he is such a great God. You just have all of a sudden you have a relationship with him. Why? Because you're adopted. You're his child. Does that describe you? I mean, when you think about your life, do you think about loving God as your father, wanting to hear from him, speak to you through his word and praying to him and being around his other children? If that does not describe you, then you need to give your life to Jesus. I mean, you may know the stories about Jesus. You may even call yourself a Christian. But if you don't have the spirit within you crying out, Abba, Father, that is a very clear indication that you are still in bondage to the elemental things of the world. But if this does describe you, and you do know you are a child of God, and you do have the spirit within you crying out, Abba, Father... Look at verse 7. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've turned from your sin and turned from Satan, if you've turned from those elemental things of the world, whether you're a Jew, keeping the law of Moses, or keeping the traditions, or worshiping idols, or worshiping yourself, or worshiping money, or whatever it is, toys, whatever. If you've turned from that to follow Jesus, realizing it is only Jesus who can save you, you are a son and an heir. That is, you will receive all the riches of God for all eternity through Christ. By his grace. Now back to our story about Jacob and Sarah. Where were we? Oh yes. They're standing on the corner. A busy street corner one snowy Sunday a week before Christmas. They were cold, clothed in rags, begging for money to give to the mean old blacksmith. And then everything changed. As they were standing there, they were approached by a man whose name was Mr. Shiloh Branch. Mr. Branch had a serious look about him, but was kind. It was obvious he was a gentleman. He spoke softly, and from the looks of his clothes, he was very rich. 
Mr. Branch was new to this area, and only a few people knew him, and no one really knew just how rich he was. What people did know is that he lived in a very large, well-kept mansion on top of the hill overlooking the city. And Mr. Branch bent down. He looked at Jacob and Sarah into the face and said, I am Mr. Shiloh Branch. I have something I want to ask you. Sarah, are you tired of living for the blacksmith? Jacob, are you tired of living for the blacksmith? And they didn't know what to say. It seemed that Mr. Branch knew who they were, but they didn't know him. They were speechless. Mr. Branch continued, I am a very wealthy man. I have many servants and many children who live in my mansion. They're just like you. And I am willing to adopt you into my family. You will be rich and receive a great inheritance. My wife, Mrs. Grace Mercy Branch will be a very loving mother to you and she will grant you everything you need to equip you for every good work. There is a condition though, you must believe in me that I am able to adopt you and deliver you from the blacksmith. You will have to be willing to change your name. I will give you a new name. You will have to be willing to obey me and my rules and no longer practice the wicked things you have been taught by the blacksmith. Are you willing to do this? Asked Mr. Branch with a serious look on his face. Jacob looked at Sarah and Sarah looked at Jacob and they still didn't know what to say. The man seemed nice and the offer seemed too good to be true. Jacob finally spoke for them both. We are tired of living for the blacksmith. Living in his house and working in his shop. We have always wanted to have a mother and a father who loved us. We believe that. You want to adopt us, but Jacob stammered, I don't think the blacksmith will let you adopt us. Mr. Branch had a very kind smile in his face and said, well, we'll just have to see about that. Hop in my carriage and let us go to see the blacksmith right now. My servants will clothe you in new white garments, give you some Good food, some hot chocolate, and a special book that you will learn how to read. And Jacob and Sarah did what they were told, but had doubts that this was going to work out for their good. It seemed that Mr. Branch knew what they were thinking, though, before they even said anything. I can see you are a bit nervous, he said. I can see that you are scared that the blacksmith will not allow me to adopt you as my children. And in the end, you will be punished for wanting to leave him and live with me. Is this true? Yes, they both said. Do not worry, said Mr. Branch. I know how to deal with people like the blacksmith. And when he said this, his eyebrows furrowed, his eyes grew dark, and it seemed in his eyes there was a flame of fire. Soon they arrived and entered into the blacksmith's shop. 
Jacob and Sarah in their new right garments were standing next to Mr. Branch. As they entered the shop, the bellows stopped blowing, the hammer stopped striking, and the blacksmith said in the angriest voice they had ever heard, What is the meaning of this? It seemed that the blacksmith knew, Mr. Branch, that they had had some unpleasant dealings before. I'm here to let you know that I am adopting Jacob and Sarah as my own. They have agreed to stop living for you and with you. They have agreed to stop doing your bidding and they will receive my name and my wife Grace will provide for all their needs. Wait a minute, said the blacksmith with clenched teeth and a hammer in his hand. These children are valuable to me. If I lose them, I would lose $200 a year and... Good workers and people who help me with my shop. Besides, they bring a lot of money in from begging too. Name your price, said Mr. Branch. The blacksmith's eyes began to narrow. His hands started to stroke his beard. A greedy smile crept upon his face and he spoke. One billion dollars one billion dollars and not a penny less and the blacksmith knew his price was ridiculously high he knew that no one had that much money and he also knew that if someone did he could buy his own mansion get a hundred servants and live in luxury the rest of his life Jacob and Sarah's heart began to sink for they knew the world was poor and no one had a billion dollars. And besides, even if they did, who would pay that much to set them free? But to their surprise, without a moment's pause, Mr. Branch said, we have a deal then. And produced from his pocket a legal document signed by the judge and handed the blacksmith a pen and said, sign here that you release Jacob and Sarah to me for one billion dollars. My servants are on their way in right now with the money. And just as Mr. Branch said that two servants dressed in white came in carrying two large trunks full of money and set them on the table. The blacksmith hesitated and Mr. Branch spoke. You have stated your price. I am willing to pay. We have a deal. Sign the document or I will have you thrown into prison for fraud. The blacksmiths signed his name. Diabolos Beelzebub. Come Jacob. Come, Sarah, hop into the carriage. Grace is anxious to meet you along with many other children and servants of my house. And as they rode towards Mr. Branch's mansion, Sarah asked, Mr. Branch, yes, he said, where did you get all that money to redeem us from the blacksmith? I humbled myself, said Mr. Branch, and gave my life for it. So Jacob and Sarah had the best Christmas they ever had, and they lived happily ever after. Now, I think most of you know what that story is about. That story is about Galatians 4, 1 through 7. And if you have never given your life to Christ, you are living for a hard taskmaster. You may enjoy some of the pleasures of sin, 
You may enjoy some of the pleasures that you receive, those crumbs of bread, but they will only bring you misery. They will only damn you to hell. And so today, this day, this Christmas morning, God is willing to save you. He is willing to redeem you. He is willing to adopt you into his family. You need to believe in Jesus, that he and he only can save you. That you can't do anything to save yourself, to call upon his name, to ask him to be your Lord and your Savior, to turn from your sin and Satan, to follow him, and he will make you his child, and you will receive a great inheritance.